Open your Bible to Revelation chapter 14 this morning. Revelation chapter 14. We'll be looking this morning at the first five verses. And these verses give us a wonderful scene in heaven where the saints are gathered with their Redeemer and they're glorying Him. They are glorifying Him. They are singing His praises. But this passage also does this. It not only gives us this vision of the saints at the very end, it's all over, just celebrating the victory, the conquering, the glory, the greatness of their King. It also does this for us. It gives us a description from the finish line of what a true Christian is. Of what a true Christian is. And so this morning, this text serves as, for us not just as a, a beautiful picture, but as a means of grace for you and I. For the church of Jesus Christ, who we are living on a battlefield. Chapters 12 and 13, where we've been the last couple of weeks. We're on a battlefield. And chapter 14 is Christ's means of grace to you and I. To empower and encourage us to continue in the battle. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song, except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning grateful for your word, grateful for the firm foundation we have in it. We thank you, Father, for how it reveals to us you, your glory, your greatness, your supremacy, your power, your glory. We thank you how it reveals to us the greatness and the glory of Christ enthroned on high the one who came in, into this world in the form of a baby, in human flesh, the one who lived the life we were supposed to live, but we didn't, and died the death we deserve to die, Father, so that we might have our sins forgiven, that your wrath against us may be turned away, and we might be reconciled to you now and forevermore. We thank you that he's a Savior who's been ascended to the right hand on high, and right now he sits on a throne, sovereign over all. We thank you for these visions, Father, that show us even in the midst of our own hardships and our own afflictions, we are not at the whim of the world around us. But we have a king who's on his throne, who's in control, who's sovereignly ordaining all things. And this morning, this vision, Lord, you've given to us as a means of grace to continue to encourage us. So give us eyes to see, Father, we pray. If there be anyone in this room who, whose eyesight is dull this morning, 
not physical, but spiritual, whose heart is not gripped by the glory of Christ and His work for, on their behalf. If there be anyone here today, Father, who has never known Jesus Christ in a saving way, then, Father, we do pray that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be that day of awakening. Today would be the day of the new birth. Today would be the day where our hearts are captivated by Christ, that He is all in all. And no matter what we're going through, we cling to Him, for He is sufficient. Lord, glorify Christ in our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Living in the Triumph of Christ. Living in the Triumph of Christ. You know, one of the things the Apostle John has been doing all throughout the book of Revelation is he's continually taking embattled believers, embattled saints. Think back to Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches, those Christians who were, who were being persecuted by the Roman Empire, who were being infiltrated by false religions, who were coming in and turning their hearts away from Christ, just subtly, just subtly. Just a false teaching here, a false teaching there, and all of a sudden now you're clinging to something other than the true Christ. These things were going on. And how in the world will they survive? How will they conquer? By looking to Jesus. The very thing the author of Hebrews told us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Now the apostle Paul says, look to Jesus in his enthroned glory. You conquer all these enemies through him. And he's been very repetitious, very diligent to show Christians, not just in the first century, but in every age, in every circumstance, even to you and I today at Covenant Life Church, he's to, to show us the triumph of Jesus Christ. He wants us to understand, no matter how powerful government may be, no matter how uh, powerful and pervasive false worship is, false religion is, counterfeit Christianity is, which is what we've been looking at in chapters 12 and 13. No matter how perverted culture may be, the Lamb has triumphed. And that picture of Christ on His throne is a grace to you and I. It's a grace to motivate us, to encourage us, to give us hope, to empower us to live daily unto Jesus, even in the midst of the hardships we're going through. I hope that resonates with you and that echoes that, yes, that's what we've been looking at in Revelation. Because what we see here is a far cry from the all-too-often approach that we see to encourage and empower Christians to live unto Jesus today. Today we see more man-centered, anemic approaches. Kind of man-made. Here, well, here, here's a book that has helped me. And I'm all for books as long as the book is looking to Jesus. The exaltation of Jesus, helping me to see the beauty and the fullness of Christ better. But a lot of times, just this man philosophy. Here's my experience. Here's what worked for me. Here's kind of what I opened my heart up to. These are anemic approaches. John's message in Revelation, regardless of the opposition, our great motivation to press on faithfully to Christ is just this vision of the triumph of the Lamb of God. So, Christ's redemption, his resurrection, his exaltation provides you and I all the grace that we need. All the, this morning, 
whatever you've come in with, whatever the burden in your family, whatever the burden in your finances, whatever the burden in your, uh, in your job or in your uh, whatever, Christ is enough. And if your heart doesn't believe that, that's, that's an internal problem. Pray right now, right now. God, open my eyes to see what obviously I'm not seeing. Help me to see Christ in his all-sufficient glory as John intends the people to live. The question is, then how do we live in the triumph of Christ? There's a couple things that draw, we draw from this passage. How do we live in the triumph of Christ? Two things I want to, two answers to that question. The first is this, we live in the triumph of Christ as we value the saving relationship we have with Christ. We will triumph over our enemies, triumph in Christ, as we value supremely the relationship we have with Christ above all other things. Above all other things that even the enemy can take away from me and destroy in my life. When I value my relationship with Christ more than anything else out there, there is grace to live in the triumph of Christ. That's the context of the passage here, isn't it? John broadly in Revelation, again, is seeking to encourage Christians to persevere in the faith as they're facing great opposition. But more specifically, chapter 14 falls in the context of chapter 12 and 13. It is not by accident that we come to chapter, chapter 14 and it begins, Then I looked and behold. This is the answer to what we've been seeing in chapters 12 and 13. Well, what have we been seeing in chapters 12 and 13? You'll recall in chapter 12, we have this picture, right? There's these characters. You have this dragon, and you have this pregnant woman. And this dragon, this woman is in the, the pains of childbirth. I have no idea what that's like. You women do. In the pains of childbirth, and this dragon comes in, jaws wide open at the womb, what? Ready to destroy the child the moment it's born. That's the picture in the opening verses of chapter 12. And the chapter 12 identifies the dragon as Satan. The child is Christ. And this is Satan going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doing everything possible to destroy the Messiah from coming. In the Old Testament, he did this by attacking the Jews. He failed there. And then when the Messiah did come through the, the Jewish line, when the Messiah actually came, he tried it there. Remember Herod's efforts to have all children killed? He failed there. And then he goes on to attack, since he can't attack the child anymore, he can't conquer the child anymore, he attacks the child's siblings, his brothers and his sisters, you and I, the church of Jesus Christ. And there in chapter 12, he fails again. God keeps him from destroying. And so in a last-ditch effort, you remember that chapter 12 closes within his frustration, transition to chapter 13, he appropriates the help of two agents to come and to aid him in destroying the brothers and sisters of Christ, you and I, the church. One is the beast from the sea, from Daniel chapter 7, it's clear that is government powers, political persuasion, political influence. 
And then the second agent is the beast that comes from the land who looks like what? A lamb. He looks like a lamb. A beast that looks like a lamb. It looks, it's a counterfeit Christ, a counterfeit religion. So we have these two beasts, these agents of Satan employed on the earth and are seeking to turn hearts away from Christ in the time until he returns. If we're honest, chapter 12 and 13 is a pretty overwhelming and bleak feeling passage. We are left in the midst of that. We are left in the midst of these agents of Satan continually turning our hearts. It's a desperate situation for the church. That's what the seven churches were experiencing. The Roman Empire, political influence. Jezebel, the false teaching that had come in that Jesus in his seven seven letters to those seven churches was telling them to repent of. The same goes on in our lives today. It's a desperate situation. Christians are being turned, tossed to and fro away from Christ because of the influence of these temptations. How can Christians keep pressing on into Jesus Christ in the midst of so much opposition? In the midst of so much temptation, how can we keep pressing on faithfully to Jesus Christ? Well, we're never told to retreat. We're never told Christians sit down and have a pity party. We're not told to whine about the opposition. We're told in chapter 13, verse 10, follow your Savior even unto death. You stay the course. You follow in Jesus' footsteps, and even if the government puts you to death, even if the false religions persecute you and put you to death, you, you just cling to Jesus. Well, for those who feel overwhelmed in the world that they live in, John says, chapter 14, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. This is the answer for Christians who are overwhelmed in the world which we live today, who are constantly being tempted to turn to and fro. Chapter 14. Look, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. There's this vision on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the Old Testament name for Jerusalem, the place where God's glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies. But when we get to the New Testament, Zion, Mount Zion is given a, a different ideology, a different idea. It's a heavenly Jerusalem, a spiritual Jerusalem, the place where Christ reigns. Then I looked, and on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Mount Zion throughout the Old Testament is a picture of victory. It's a place of deliverance, a place of victory. If you go back and look at passages like Obadiah chapter 17, but on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, those who are delivered, and it will be holy. In Micah chapter 4, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forevermore. It's a place of, 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 of deliverance, a place of victory, a place where God rules and a place where God reigns. But more important than that, as we continue understanding Scripture into the New Testament, Zion is the place where Christ reigns. It's the place, the seat of Christ's sovereign messianic kingship. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read this. 
The author of Hebrews writes, you have come, he's talking to the Christian, you have come by faith to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. It's obvious that when the author of Hebrews is talking about Zion, he's not talking about a geographical location, he's talking about a spiritual heavenly seat. You've been brought to Christ. You've come by faith to Mount Zion. You've come by faith to King Jesus, to His rule, to His reign. It's a spiritual place. And in this case, here in Matthew, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 14, it's the dwelling place of God and His chosen faithful people. It's the place where the redeemed fellowship with their King. It's the place where Christians Worship face-to-face with Jesus Christ. It's the Jerusalem above. And we'll see this played out more in subsequent chapters. What's John doing here? John intends you and I as believers to see the strength and the power and the stability of Christ standing on Mount Zion. Your experience may be you're being tempted to and fro to turn from Christ. And it may be a concern. Might I fall away? Might I turn from Jesus Christ? Might one of these false teachings actually subtly turn my heart away from Jesus Christ and I be lost forever? Can it happen? Now don't rush through that because theologically, inevitably, someone will stand up and say, no, 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 once saved, always saved. Yes, Once truly saved, always saved. But there are very real implications in our daily lives. We must stay the course with Christ. The one who finishes is the one who is faithful all the way through. How will we get through? See this vision of your king standing on Mount Zion exercising his sovereign rule. Sovereign over the dragon. Sovereign over his agents. Sovereign over all these things. Look at your king. He's not cowering. You're in fear. Look at him. He's not shivering. He's not cowering. He's not biting his fingernails, if you will. He is standing on Mount Zion, ever-present as our strength. You see the vision? And he goes on, standing with the Lamb, John says, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. He's emphasizing here that even in the midst of Satan's attacks that that we experience day after day, Satan's attacks to turn us subtly away from Jesus Christ. Subtly just add to the gospel. A false teaching here, a false teaching there kind of creating idols out of other things, subtly turning us away. John intends for us in the face of these attacks to know that we can remain confident. Because look up. Look who's around the king who's on his throne, who straddles Mount Zion. It's the 144,000. And who are they? We've seen them before. It goes all the way back to chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. They're symbolic of all the redeemed, all the church, the fullness of the church throughout the church age, throughout Old Testament, throughout New Testament. It's the fullness of God's people. 
These are the sealed we read about in chapter 7. These are the ones who perceived the seal, the blood of Jesus Christ. They've been marked unto God. And they have the name of the Lamb, the Father, written on their, their heads, on their foreheads. Again, it's on their minds. It's symbolic. It's not a literal thing upon their head. It's just they are stamped, they're thinking, their mind, their heart, their affections. It is stamped, this person belongs to God. This person belongs to Christ. Christ is everything to this one. I think it's interesting, it's just a side note when it says there in verse 1, he, he had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. It's a, the verb there, it's called a perfect passive verb. You don't pick that up just by reading. It's just something you have to, in studying the, 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 the tenses of the verbs there, that just simply means it's permanent. It's unchanging. Through divine action, through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, these people who bear the mark of God upon their forehead, of their thinking, God is all upon their soul. Those who have this, it's by divine grace. It's a permanent change. And nothing can alter it. The point is what? And you look up at this vision, at the end of it all, the king has conquered. He's on his throne on Mount Zion. He's surrounded by the 144,000, by, by his people, the people that he redeemed, the people that he died for. Not one of them was lost. Not one of them is missing. It's what Jesus says, my father gives them to me and nobody can snatch them out of my hand because they're there by grace. They're there by omnipotent power. The God who begins a good work in us is the one who sees it through to completion. And the, the fact that it's 144,000, which again, chapter 7, symbolic of all the redeemed that Christ came to save. They're all there. The king has conquered. He's on Mount Zion, and they are all there. Not one is missing. Do you see the vision? The hope that it gives to Christians hurting and suffering and, and, and wondering, can I stay the course? Look up. If you belong to Him, He will see you through to the very end. It's to encourage. It's a reminder to us, even as this world and Satan and these agents of Satan that we've been talking about in chapter 13 continue to tempt us, God loses none that He redeems through Christ. It's a wonderful assurance to you and I who are right now today. And I hope you know this, are engaged in this war with Satan and his agents. If you don't know it, you may not be fighting, and you may be, have already been turned in a way you don't, you don't even realize yet. You've got to know this battle is raging over your soul to tempt you to turn away from Christ. Unless you think that's not important, that's the whole reason the book of Hebrews was written. It was important enough to say, you're being tempted to turn away from Jesus, to add something to Jesus through false teaching. Return to him now. There was great danger, and the same is true for us today. If we are not fighting in this battle, then we are drifting. And that's a dangerous position to be. What a wonderful assurance in this vision here. The fight is worth it. 
if you fight faithfully to the end, you will, by God's grace, be counted among them because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And notice also, you've got the vision of Christ on his throne, surrounded by the 144,000, and notice what they're doing. We read again in verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Let's pause there. What's this new song? Well, they're singing a new song. Well, we, my experience, we don't like new songs. You know, we, we like old songs. What is the new song? Well, throughout the Old Testament, a new song was always a hymn of praise to God for some great work of deliverance he had accomplished. For example, what's one of the first things that Israel does after God brings them out of Mount Sinai, through the Red Sea, he parts the waters, they get across, they turn around, the Egyptians are coming, they're crossing that same dry land, and all of a sudden God brings the waters down and destroys all of them, and Israel's free. What's the first thing they do? They sing a new song. Why? It's a song of we just witnessed God do something we never could have imagined. He delivered us by power we didn't know existed. We saw water. We saw a river, waters like this. And we walked across on, it wasn't even soggy, dry ground. And we got across and we looked and our enemies are coming for us and they walk across that same, and all of a sudden they're sinking. It's not dry ground for them. And all of a sudden the waters come. It's a new thing they'd never seen before. They'd never known before. There is not a song that is can adequately praise and worship the God for the power we just saw. Therefore, we write a new song that is worthy of God. It was a new song. And we see this over and over in the Old Testament. Anytime God did a magnificent work of deliverance, those delivered would inevitably write some new song of jubilant celebration of, in the aftermath of God's deliverance of God did this. We can't sing an old song because he's never done this before. We've never seen anything like this before. So we write a new song which praises and glorifies him in ways never thought of before. It's the same thing here. This new song is the climax. Of worship. This song that they're singing is the highest worship possible in heaven, which explains why it can only be sung by the 144,000. The 144,000 who, again, this vision is what? It's the end. It's been done. Christ is on his throne. All of his people, not one has been lost. They are around his throne. They're singing his praises, his deliverance, his glory, his greatness down here. Man, our sin nature we had Satan, we had his ages tempting us, push, tossing us to and fro, but here we are, we've conquered, and we sing a song, you did this. We've never seen 
anything like this before. This is greater than what you did at the Red Sea. This is greater than anything you did in Old Testament history. This is what you have accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so these 144,000 are the only ones who can sing it because they are the ones who were affected by it. They are the ones who've been rescued by the power and the grace and the goodness of God. They're around the throne. Down here, they were outnumbered and weak. Down here, we are outnumbered and weak as the people of God. We have political influence. We have false religion. Those who are faithful to Christ, didn't Jesus say the way is narrow? We are the minority. We are outnumbered. We are the weak. And if God is going to bring us from where we are here to what we see here, it will only be by omnipotent power and grace. And those will sing this song. They're extolling the wonder of what their king had done. When it says the 144,000 are the only ones who can sing it, you do understand there's also the four living creatures around there. They can't sing it. These angelic hosts, they're around. They can't sing it. It's, why? it's a song of victory. It's a song that only the redeemed can sing because Christ has done it for them. The followers of the beast can't do it. Those who fall and pray to the two agents can't do it. One commentator, Dennis Johnson, adds this. The purpose of this secrecy, and he's using the word secrecy there with having to do with only the 144,000 can sing it, no way. The point of this secrecy is not to keep God's glory veiled but to symbolize the astonishing truth, sinful, sinful people redeemed by the Lamb are qualified by that experience of salvation to extol Him in a way that even the purest, highest angel cannot. Into the mystery of our salvation, even angels long to look. Those angels who reside in the presence of Almighty God are astounded and in awe of God's grace in Jesus Christ for you and I, the salvation of a sinner and all that goes in to the, taking a sinner from where we are to where we, what we see here in Revelation chapter 14. The angels are like, and I, I questioned in my own soul this week going through this, why, why do I not do this? The angels are like, I, I, how in the world? How? I, I saw who this person was. I saw the rebellion and wickedness and, and everything that it took to get them from here to here. They're blown away by. Oh, how little we think of and understand the gospel and the full implication of all that it takes to redeem, to sanctify, and to glorify a Christian. As they sing, and we're told, they, they sing powerfully like the roar of many waters. Boom, boom, boom. Again, I can only look at my own heart. I know when we, do we worship powerfully? I'm not talking about perfectly. I don't, I'm talking about, do we even try? Do you participate? They sing powerfully like the roar of many waters. Why? Because their hearts are captivated by Christ. Like loud thunder. It's not because they're trying to be obnoxious. 
as they're blown away by the glory of Christ. And they sing joyfully like the sound of many harpists. They can't fathom what Christ has done to bring them to God. I'm not talking about perfect worship in the church. Oh, do we even try? Do we come with a heart that is earnest to glorify this God who has done this for me? So here we see the redeemed of the Lord singing with loud, powerful, joyful singing. Why? Because he won the battle. He won the fight. He conquered the enemy. And they have made it home by grace around the throne on Mount Zion. So, What's the point here? We live in triumph today as we value that saving relationship with Jesus Christ more than anything else. In that moment there, everything that's been left behind is inconsequential to them. Christ is all. And that is a grace to you and I. If we would treasure Christ in that way, to battle the temptation of the evil one, to turn away from Christ. The second thing, we live in the triumph of Christ as we bear the characteristics of the redeemed, as we, bear, as we look like the redeemed. Our assurance is that there is evidence in my life What I see in them, this is what the finished product looks like. I see evidence in my life. I'm moving in that direction. That's what he says here. John identifies the 144,000 in the presence of Christ who have been redeemed from the earth. The word redeemed, purchased. They've been purchased at a high cost. It wasn't money. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. It was the cost of Christ's own life that it took to purchase us out of this world unto God. It was stated for us in Revelation chapter 5, for you were slain, speaking of the Lamb, you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. You see, these redeemed around the throne, they're there because they've been bought by grace, and the price was the blood of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It means our sin was so heinous, your sin, my sin, so heinous, so desperate was our condition, so insurmountable was our separation from God. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, the redemptive death of Jesus Christ, could satisfy the justice of God. God's demand for the wages of sin is death, for our, the bloodshed that we deserved, only the blood of Christ in our place could satisfy that and deliver us from the wrath of God because it was placed on Christ in our place and deliver us unto God with sins forgiven. A precious price that had to be paid. And there in chapter 5, verse 9, where we read that the lamb was slain and purchased for God, With his own blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, he goes on to say, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. 
See, this is where a lot of gospel is lacking today. We'll tell somebody you can be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, but we don't go all the way, and, and once he purchases you, he owns you, you belong to him, and his intention with you is to make you just like Jesus. And if you're not looking more and more like Jesus, make no mistake about it. You don't belong to him. You see, this is the confidence of these around the throne. They have come to completion of what God purchased them for, to make them more like Jesus. And this is what John describes here. Notice in verses 4 and 5, he gives a trilogy of it is these who, and he describes them. And then there's a second, these who, he describes them. And then there's a third one as well. These who are around the throne, these who've made it to the finish line, these who are around the throne, this, these are the characteristics, these are the, are the marks of them that demonstrate they have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. So what are these things? First is this, fidelity to Christ. And we see this in verse 4. It is these... 144,000 around the throne, seeing the praises of the king. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, this is not a commentary on marriage. We have to go, but again, so much of understanding the revelation is you've got to understand your Bible. Just, just understand what's come before it in its context. It's best to understand these virgins here, not as physical, literal virgins, but as God's saints who have remained faithful to their groom. They have remained faithful to their groom. Quite often in the Old Testament, the word virgin is used repeatedly for the nation of Israel to speak of her faithfulness to God. When she was faithful, the word virgin was used. We see it in 2 Kings chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 37, and other passages as well. Faithfulness to Christ. They were like virgins to their groom. Faithful to Him. Didn't, didn't pursue other lovers. Faithful to God. And then Paul told the Corinthians that in his ministry to them, he betrothed them to one husband to present them as pure virgins to Christ. He's not talking physically there. Spiritually. Faithful to Jesus. When he purchases you at the high cost of his blood, he expects, and I don't know why we would expect less, faithfulness to him. Likewise, when Israel wandered away from the Lord to other gods and fell into the sin of idolatry, in the Old Testament it was called adultery. You're not talking about physical, it's spiritual adultery. God often calls Israel things like this. I mean, no disrespect. I got it. He calls them a harlot. He calls them a whore. He calls her a prostitute. Go and read the book of Hosea. Go read the book of Judges, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. That is God's own word for his wayward people. You're a whore. You're a prostitute. You're a harlot. And in fact, earlier in the seven letters, John referred to some who ate food sacrificed to idols and practiced 
sexual immorality. He talked about those who had been seduced by Jezebel to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. You see, there is such a thing as waywardness and a spiritual adultery. But these around the throne, these are faithful to Christ by grace. These are those who, they were tempted in every way that everybody else was to spiritually turn away from Christ. But these, by grace, remained faithful to Jesus. And it's what we read in Ephesians chapter 5. Christ has sanctified and cleansed the church so that he might present to himself, in all, to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. That's what we see here in 14, Revelation 14. They are holy, they are blameless by grace. Paul uses similar language to the Corinthians to rebuke them for their flirtation with the world. Paul says to them in 2 Corinthians 11, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you a pure virgin, but you're not. And he calls them to repentance. You see, the author, John here is reminding the first century seven churches, every church in every age until Christ returns, and Covenant Life Church this morning, that being a Christian is antithetical to the adulterous ways of the world. The Christ who bought us at the high cost of His blood demands faithfulness from us. And no, the excuse, well, nobody's perfect, will carry any weight. Nobody is perfect. But Christ has bought us and purchased us and provided us everything necessary in the Holy Spirit, in the Word, to keep our hearts entranced and captivated by Christ. Looking unto Jesus, we become like Him. We become transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. If that's not occurring, what does that say about our heart? Christians must remain faithful to Christ, chaste to Christ, remembering we are his bride. Right? We remember that in our physical marriages. We belong to one other. The same is true in our, our physical marriages are but pictures of the real marriage. We're wed to Christ, faithfulness to him. The second picture here of a, True believer here at the end is their devotion to Christ. These it is who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. True believers take Jesus serious. Not just on a Sunday morning we come and words pop up on a screen and we sing glory to Jesus. Not just in a prayer meeting we just kind of half-heartedly participate. If nothing else comes of my ministry ever, I hope it's this. Jesus, Christians take Jesus seriously. He's not a Sunday school Jesus. He's not a, but he is everything. And you have to determine as I do, is he everything to me? The original disciples dropped their nets to follow him. 
They left their tax tables to follow him. Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, forsake himself, forsake all other loves, all other things, and let him take up his cross and follow me. Jesus described, or John describes Jesus as the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name, and they follow him. Why? They know his voice. They're so intimate in, in their communion and fellowship with Christ in the word. They hear his voice and they know, and because he's everything to them, they follow. And just as John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus said to the Father, all that the Father has given me to do, I have done. I have glorified you. That's the, that's the prayer that we pray, for on, Lord, for Christ. All that our King has told us to do, we want to do. We want to glorify him. The Lamb went to the cross and died. We are devoted to taking up the cross and following him, dying daily to the deeds of the body. Is that true of you this morning? Following Jesus Christ, devoted to Jesus Christ, as the all-sufficient king of your life. And the third mark here, we see it, there at the end of verse 4. And these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. The first fruits. For who? For God. True believers have been set apart for God. Set apart for His glory. Set apart for Christ, the exaltation of Christ. We have been saved and given as an expression of worship to God. Is that true of us? And in their mouths no lie was found, for they are blameless. He's not talking about perfection here. Now around the throne in a glorified state, yes. But he's talking about in contrast to what we've already seen. You've got the dragon, you've got their two beasts. Every word of their mouth is deceit, right? You have the second beast who was a lamb who spoke like what? A dragon, deceitfulness. Are we more characterized by Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life? Or are we more characterized like the, the second agent, the second beast, who looks like a lamb? Every word that comes out of his mouth is deceit. We talked this morning about one of the obstacles to unity in the church is an uncontrolled tongue. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In an anti-Christian world, one of the true marks of a believer today, where lies and deceit run the gamut today, Christians stand out as emblems of truth, honesty, and integrity. Is that true for you? You see, these are not just moralistic lessons. These are the marks of one who's been purchased by Christ. And this is a wonderful vision for you and I. This is the final analysis of every true believer. Christians who are struggling, look and see. Not one is lost. Not one who's been purchased. Not one who has been purchased and has been conformed to the likeness of Jesus, growing in sanctification, has, has been lost along the way. They've made it. 
But this vision only encourages and empowers insofar as we see evidence we're on that road as well. Verses 2 and 3 of our text here. The people of God are pictured as giving heartfelt praise to God, to the king, for the victory they've won. They're singing a new song of praise because the king gave his own life on the cross. He took on the wrath of God on the cross for rebels, for enemies. He died in their place, in our place. And they're singing a new song because no one has ever done anything like this before. This is unthinkable, the plan of salvation. They're singing the new song. Christians, are we? Are we entranced by all that it took to take us from where we are, were as a rebel and to bring us to God? Does that new song fill our hearts with joy, with energy, with passion, with loudness? Not, not, I'm not talking about obnoxious. I'm talking about I just can't hold back. Are we in everything giving thanks? Are we exhibiting the characteristics of a true believer? How is your fidelity to Christ? Are you in a season of spiritual adultery? Where you've turned away from Christ to another lover, another God, another idol, another king? We talked about this morning in our catechism question, what does the law of God require? That we love God with all of our heart all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Not a compartmentalized, well, I've got room for Jesus, plus I've got room for family, I've got room for finances. He wants us to love him faithfully, wholeheartedly, just as you want from your spouse. You don't want your spouse loving you 60%, and then another person, co-worker at work 30%, and then a neighbor 20%, right? want all of the affection. Why would God allow anything else? How's our fidelity to Christ? Our devotion to Christ? Are we becoming like Him? Are we set apart for Christ? We are the first fruits for Him. As we go out these doors today, back into a world where Satan, the dragon, is still at work, the agents are still at work, tempting us, tossing us to and fro. But I belong to Jesus. And by grace, clinging to Jesus, clinging to this vision, I'm going to battle, I'm going to fight faithfully for Jesus with every word and every action. What a beautiful, beautiful picture we have here of the saints in glory. Not a one is lost. But are you counted among them? Does your life give evidence that you've been bought that you've repented, truly repented, turned from all else and turned to Jesus, and that you're becoming like Jesus by grace. May God encourage our hearts where it applies and convict us where needed.